Okay, people, um, I've got uh, six pages with your questions. Um, so there must be about 60 of them. I shall not be answering all of them. Um, some of them uh, raise questions that are covered a bit in uh, some pages at the end of the syllabus, uh, the course notes. So I'm going to talk about those a bit first because that was, those will relate to some of the questions. This, this is page 127. Uh, the intertextual nature of the writings. Don't worry about that phrase. That must have been somebody's question on some other year. Um, but the question underneath is a question that several people raised, in effect. Is there a consistent theology in the writings? If so, what is it? If not, how can they be part of one Bible coming from one Holy Spirit? I find the idea of family resemblances helpful in this connection. Um, the idea of family resemblances is that um, uh, if you got kind of ten golden gays, uh, you'd probably find that there were some things that were true about all of them. Maybe a certain uh, shape of head or shape of nose or shape of body or something of that kind. Um, they wouldn't all be the same, but there'd be some things they'd got in common. So you might be able to say, well, there's a golden gay family profile that's got the following eight features about it. Um, and if somebody has got all, of, well, some golden gays might have all of those. Some might have six, some might have four. Uh, some might not have any, in which case something funny might have gone on in that. Well, they look like that, you know. Um, and the different books of the Bible, I think, are a bit like that, uh, in a way. Uh, you can see Ecclesiastes, arguably, is at one extreme in terms of its relationship with the, with the rest of the books. Um, there, are, there are overlaps between the books they don't, all say, they don't all say the same thing but they belong to the same family and sometimes you can see that they belong to the same family when you compare them with some other family um, sometimes the books are in internal conversation uh, and I've put there three examples of books within the writings that have got a conversation going on inside the books we've seen with Psalms um, there's a conversation going on between praise and protest and thanksgiving. Uh, and, and, so, and you could say it's an, there's an argument going on, but they're all part of a whole life with God, as the book of Psalms as a whole describes it. There's a conversation going on in Job, uh, between the um, perspective uh, on Job's suffering that's given by the story at the beginning, and then Job's own perspective, and the three friends, um, and Elihu, and the wisdom speech, and Yahweh's speeches in the end. They, they, they are all looking at the same issue from different angles, and they are having a discussion or an argument, if you like. And uh, you can see that I've just suggested in the book of Daniel, uh, in the way that it talks about God reigning now, um, but also in the second half talks about the fact that God is not reigning now, but that God will reign. Another way of seeing the um, way in which the relationship between them uh, is B on the sheet there. They influence each other. They're in conscious conversation with each other. And here, there's the David Allen Hubbard quote. Proverbs says, these are the rules for life. Try them and they will find that they work. Job and Ecclesiastes say, we did and they don't. And there's an overlap between them because Proverbs uh, sometimes shows a recognition that things are more complicated than you might think uh, by looking at any one proverb on its own. And the great example is in chapter 26. Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you'll be a fool yourself. Answer fools according to their folly, or they'll be wise in their own eyes. Oh, the Bible contradicts itself again. It's such a nuisance, it won't give you a straight answer. Because life is not like that. 
Proverbs knows that life is more complicated. Job is a discussion of all the problems raised about whether God really does um, honour those who honour God. Uh, but in the end it says, yeah, God does. The story ends off in that neat, neat way. Ecclesiastes combines the two views. It gives you the orthodox teaching, it disagrees with it, and then at the end um, the, uh, the last six verses say, yeah, of course the, the orthodox teaching is right. There's a conversation um, in which the books are talking with each other, but also the individual books themselves, in each of those cases in the writings, recognise that the truth is more complicated um, than we wish it was. Or you could say the canon puts the books in conversation with each other, um, within the writings themselves. So Ruth, and Ezra and Ruth is put in conversation with Ezra and Nehemiah, um, by virtue of being put in the writings together. Ruth, a book that declares uh, how great it is when this Moabite comes to acknowledge Yahweh and is welcomed into the community in Bethlehem. Ezra and Nehemiah that say how dangerous it is when loads of people get to marry people who are outside the community. Uh, the, the, the faith may disappear when they do that. There's truth in both of those. Um, starting where the culture is and or pushing the boundaries. There's uh, Proverbs and the Song of Songs in conversation. Proverbs that focuses on warning you about sex. The Song of Songs um, that focuses on enthusiasm about sex. Uh, there's Ecclesiastes and the visions in Daniel. Uh, Ecclesiastes being realistic about the present. Um, Daniel uh, being ho uh, hopeful about the future. Uh, there's Ruth and Esther. Openness to other peoples in Ruth. Hesitation about other people is in Esther. There's Esther and the stories in Daniel. Um, Skepticism about politics in Esther. Hopefulness about politics in Daniel. There's lamentations and psalms um, in the, uh, the way they talk about suffering. That is, lamentations accepting guilt. The psalms more inclined to insist on faithfulness and therefore that suffering is um, uh, impossible to, to understand. Different angles on the truth that, the dif that different books um, maintain and the uh, canon itself, the, the collection of the books of the writings, puts them in conversation with each other in order to help you towards a fuller view and to see the different sorts of angles that you need to be able to have in your mind in order to approach any particular situation. And then note also a conversation between the writings and the Torah and the prophets. Uh, usually the writings are going to be later and so the writings are likely responding uh, to the Torah and the prophets if it's a conscious, com a conscious conversation. Uh, so you can compare uh, the story of Ruth and the story of Tamar in Genesis 38 and the rule in Deuteronomy 23 that says that you can't have anything to do with Moabites uh, and the um, promise, the declaration in Isaiah 56 uh, that foreigners can be welcomed in the community if they're willing to accept the terms of the covenant. Uh, and, and Jonah, um, that declares God's judgment on, on, on Nineveh, but then uh, describes how God lets them off. Different angles on the question about attitudes to foreigners. Um, different angles between Esther and the Torah on how God operates in history. So Esther um, never mentions God, uh, presupposes, I assume, that God is involved, but um, pictures God 
entirely working through, working behind the scenes through human actions and through coincidences. The Joseph story in Genesis 37 to 50 that makes the same assumption about God operating behind the scenes but then it has Joseph towards the end pointing out that God was doing that which Esther never says. And then the book of Exodus that talks about God um, getting involved um, in an interventionist way in what happens. Each of them giving you then angles on the truth, angles you need to keep in mind. Proverbs and Deuteronomy, where the teaching, the expectations with regard in connection with life that Proverbs and Deuteronomy have are very similar. But Deuteronomy presents that to you as Yahweh's word, or rather as Moses' uh, word in the book of Deuteronomy itself. A declaration from the powerful authoritative teacher figure, Moses. Whereas Proverbs present it to you as wise teaching um, based on experience, not as something to do with the covenant, which is the way that Deuteronomy presents it. Chronicles and Amos. Uh, Chronicles that says, isn't worship terrific? And Amos that says, God hates worship. And in different contexts, those are both right things to say. When the people in the Second Temple period are down um, and disillusioned and think God has abandoned them, um, then the reminder of the reality and the wonder of God's presence with them in worship is really important. In a context like Amos, where people think that God is with them and they're enthusiastic about worship, but they aren't living in a way that matches the kind of things that they say in their worship, then they need to have their worship trashed. Chronicles and Kings, which gives you, uh, which give you within the writings and then within the earlier history, two alternative versions of the story of the monarchy, with different emphases. Chronicles, for instance, totally misses out, omits the history of Ephraim of the Northern Kingdom. Kings includes it, even though it recognises um, that um, that, the, that these were people who had gone away uh, from Jerusalem and from the Davidic promise. Different perspectives brought out in different books. I like to think um, of the Bible sometimes as a, like a photo album. Uh, last week, um, my eldest son sent me two photographs of uh, my granddaughter, uh, whose soccer team had just won the cup final. Ray! Uh, now, I didn't say to Stephen, oh, okay, don't bother to send me any photos of, uh, of Emma, I've got one. Because the more photographs you've got of somebody, the more you understand of them. Um, and the, uh, the Bible is a vast photograph album uh, that uh, gives you pictures from a vast number of periods. So it's like a photo album that keeps accumulating as the people's story goes on. But it's also a collection of photographs by people who photographed the reality from lots of different angles. They're all kind of pictures of the lion, if you like. But some of them are standing back and they give you a picture of the lion as a whole um, from the side. And others of them stand in front of the lion and give you a picture of the lion from the front. And some of them just look down at the lion's foot and give you a picture of the lion's foot. But they all contribute to your total picture. Now, you know the story about the, people, the four blind men who are trying to describe an elephant. Um, and describe the elephant in all sorts of different ways because they all had got hold of a different <coughs> bit of the elephant. Um, and their description of the elephant were therefore contradictory if you took, if they took or if you took, their um, description of the elephant from feel 
to be a total description of the elephant. The wonder of scripture is that it gives you so many descriptions of the, well, I'd rather think of God as a lion than as an elephant, so many descriptions of the lion um, uh, from, from all sorts of, um, of course, you think God is a kitten. Um, so many descriptions of God from so many different angles, uh, from so many different periods and so on, um, that, that, that you could never then produce, you couldn't turn all these pictures into one picture of the lion. It's not like a kind of um, mosaic in which you've got all the bits and you put them together, which I think is sometimes how people think that theology ought to work. It's, it's a much more living um, reality than that. Uh, the writings of the New Testament. Go back to page 17. What's on page 17? It says there. I what the... Oh, I remember. Well, I vaguely remember. Uh, on page 17, back at the beginning, nine weeks ago or something. Um, I drew your attention to the way that a passage like the 2 Timothy 3 passage describes all the scriptures as profitable to us. Um, and they uh, are profitable with regard to our upbuilding as people of God. And they are, of course, uh, 2 Timothy, of course, is talking uh, about the Old Testament scriptures and including the writings. It's not talking about the New Testament. Um, uh, and uh, thus, the 2 Timothy passage gives you uh, an important impetus to reading these books as all designed to be profitable for correction and teaching and training in righteousness and so on. Um, let, me, let me kind of go off a as a slight tangent uh, to pick up the interesting question that somebody asks in their posting um, where they say, uh, in looking back through all we've studied over the past few months, I feel like the inerrancy of Scripture hasn't really been touched upon. I transferred here from a school where inerrancy was the dominant issue in addressing Scripture. As polarizing as that seemed to be within the classroom, I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are on the inerrancy of Scripture, especially concerning books like Job and Esther and Ruth. Now, the reason why I go off on that tangent to this point uh, is that 2 Timothy 3.16 uh, is the proof text for believing in inerrancy, but it don't work. Because uh, the inerrancy is an inference from what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God, is God-breathed. Therefore, said Benjamin Warfield, it must be inerrant. Not so, not so, or at least that's not the point that 2 Timothy wants to make. The point about inspiration of scripture uh, came to be seen at the end of the 19th century as a guarantee of its factual accuracy. Um, uh, but that happened as a result of theological developments in the 19th century, the development uh, of biblical criticism and the need on the part of people who wanted to take scripture seriously of a way of making sure you could carry on um, having a basis for relying on scripture and taking scripture seriously. And the way that people did that was by taking that verse out of 2 Timothy and making an inference from it that nobody had made before. It, it inspired, therefore inerrant, uh, was the logic that came out at the end of the 19th century. But that wasn't the point about saying that scripture was inspired. The point about saying that scripture was inspired, as you can tell from other references to 
inspiration and to the, to, and to the activity of the Spirit in the producing of scriptures within the New Testament. The point about saying that is to say that's why it is that scripture can speak to us today. How can scripture have that extraordinary capacity to speak to people way outside of the context for which it was originally written? Answer, the Holy Spirit was involved in its production. Um, the, there, there is no basis in scripture for believing in the inerrancy of scripture. Uh, there is a basis in your belief in God for, rec for, um, for, for being sure that scripture is as factually accurate as it needs to be because you know that God is love and God wouldn't give us a guide to who he is that wasn't as accurate as it needs to be. But, but there's no need for scripture to be inerrant. Now maybe it is. I don't know. Um, I mean, may, maybe every single fact, historical fact in scripture is historically true. But I don't think the Bible ever tells us that, and we don't need it to be true. We do need it to be reasonably accurate. But the important thing then is not a distinction between things that it says that are factually true and things that aren't factually true that therefore we ignore, because the inspiration of Scripture implies to the whole thing, um, both where it's talking factually and when it's been kind of decorated and applied to you and uh, told in a way that doesn't correspond to exactly what you'd have seen if you'd been there. It's, uh, it's a story that's told in such a way as to have an impact on people um, and sometimes it will be more factual and sometimes, sometimes it will be more fictional because God likes facts and God likes fiction. We know that God likes fiction because Jesus went around telling fictional stories. Um, and the, the fictional stories, which we call the parables, were at least as important as a teaching uh, device, a, a way of teaching God's truth to Jesus, as ever talking about facts was. And so it won't be surprising if outside of the teaching of Jesus, elsewhere in Scripture, in fact, it would be, it would be surprising if the opposite wasn't the, was the case. That is, if outside of the teaching of Jesus, God didn't use fiction in the same way as within the teaching of Jesus, God uses fiction. Um, the, but, but, but I don't, when I'm reading Ruth or Esther or something like that, I don't, I'm not thinking about, oh, is this a bit that's factual or a bit that's fictional? Because that's not um, a significant question to be asking when you, when you want to know what was God saying through this text. It's the book as inspired by God, exactly as it is in the form that we have in Scripture, that is the thing for us to learn from wherever the boundary in individual books are, wherever the boundary may lie in individual books, uh, between the facts that actually happened and ways in which the story has been decorated. Do you want to attack me about that, anybody? Or even, uh, yeah, do, do you want to come back at me about, it, about that? Well, that kind of arose out of um, the uh, page 17, mentioning at the top the text that I mentioned. Oh, go on, yep. <coughs> Well, I was talking about factual inerrancy. That's a different the, the question about. Um, but people take it that far. Uh, well, you point out that they're being illogical. <laughs> okay. 
Um, um, that that apropos apropos of the passage in two Timothy about about inspiration. Um, if you ask the question, what's the relationship then? How, how how do you look at the the writings and the Old Testament in general uh, in light of the New Testament? Then I suggested back at the beginning some lenses for looking at the Old Testament that the New Testament itself suggests. It tells you, uh, it, 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 it looks at passages, um, it, it looks, um, it uses passages to help understand who Jesus was. Um, you can see it doing, doing that with Chronicles and the um, introductions to Matthew and Luke. Uh, it looks uh, at the nature of the church in light of the Old Testament. It, dis it discovers things about mission and ministry by reading the Old Testament. Uh, it looks at uh, aspects of spirituality, as Jesus does in his Beatitudes, lifting out the Psalms, for instance. It looks at who Israel is. And it looks at the nature of the world and how you understand the empires uh, in Revelation on the basis of the prophets. Um, I won't go down the rest of that because I think uh, on that... Yeah, uh, on, on page 128, the page I was uh, showing you just now, um, there's a kind of another, another um, take on that. Uh, a student asked, why are so many books in the writings not ones that seem like scripture? That's a great question. A book about romantic love? A book that doesn't mention God? A book that seems depressing? A book that repeats other books. Another book about depression. <laughs> so how does 2 Timothy 3 uh, verses 14 to 16 work out? But in a way what follows is back to front. It's the New Testament that has to fit into the Old Testament, not the other way around. What I mean by that is that the, the question for somebody like Paul, the question for us tends to be, how do you fit the Old Testament in with the Gospel? For Paul the question was the opposite. It, it, he got to show that his gospel was, was consistent with the Old Testament, not that the Old Testament was consistent with his gospel. Because Paul and everybody else knew that, the, that what we call the Old Testament was the inspired word of God. The, but Paul's version of the gospel, at first sight, could sound as if it was not in keeping with the scriptures, with the inspired word of God. Um, so we need to see how our angle is kind of back to front in terms of the New Testament's own agenda. It, has to, it had to show how it was consistent with the Old Testament, not the, um, not the other way around. But answers, with regard, uh, answers from Matthew with regard to the Old Testament as a whole, uh, here are six ways of looking at the significance of the Old Testament. And you'll see I've put underneath um, numbers 1, 3 and 5 apply especially to the writings. Uh, if you, when you read, start reading the New Testament with the beginning of Matthew, um, you find first the Old Testament as the, as the story that explains who Jesus is in the genealogy. Then you find in the account of Jesus' birth, uh, the Old Testament providing, providing you with the promises that God fulfills in Jesus. Then in the uh, story of, uh, of John the Baptist and of Jesus' baptism, you find it as the theological dictionary that Jesus uses and that John uses. The terms, the way in which they talk about God and so on, come from out the Old Testament. In the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in chapter 4, 
you find the Old Testament describing the way of life that Jesus lives, pre prescribing and describing. Uh, in those Beatitudes, you find the Old Testament, including the writings, providing the raw materials for understanding a relationship with God. And in the ongoing unfolding uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, you find the Old Testament providing the foundation for right living. Jesus adds to it in the way that a prophet does, but he um, presupposes its foundation. Um, and then the bottom half of that page, who is God and who are we in the writings? What's the, what are their, what's the, um, what is the writings theology? Well, here's a writings theology. God is one who can absorb everything we throw. God is one who answers protests and pleas. God is one who remains merciful even when it doesn't look like it. God is one who answers back. God is one who makes things work out. God is one who doesn't tell us all we'd like to know. God is one who works for our coincidences and human acts. God is one who lives, who likes this life and likes worldly things. And what does it mean to live in the Spirit? Um, one or two people raised questions about the Holy Spirit in their, um, uh, in their postings. Let's see if I can find the, the questions. Oh, this isn't it, but I just, I've, I've got to share you this comment. I'm just so much more comfortable in the writings now that, than I am anywhere else in the Bible. Can I just take this class again, please? <laughs> Answer, no, because the whole point is to go and read other things. Those of you who didn't like, don't like the writings, you need to take the class again. Taught by somebody else is better than me at, at it, evidently. <laughs> um, what, role, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament compared with the New Testament? Did the Holy Spirit indwell Old Testament believers as he does with us? Is there a difference between indwelling of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit? Why was the Spirit of the Lord able to depart from Saul in 1 Samuel and leave Samson in Judges? Was that the Holy Spirit? Why can the Spirit of God depart from a person in the Old Testament while believers can quench the Holy Spirit but not have the Holy Spirit depart in the New Testament? Um, let me start from the assumption that yeah. Um, when, when I read, say, uh, the worship in the Psalms, or um, the story of somebody like um, Ruth, um, then uh, I don't find myself saying to myself, oh, if only those people were, f were filled with the Holy Spirit, then they would be more real in their relationship with God like I am. I might find myself having the opposite. That is, uh, I, I aspire to the kind of reality uh, in worship that you read about in Chronicles. Um, or the kind of attitude, that attitude of chesed that you find in Ruth. Uh, or the praise that there is in the Psalms. Uh, and I can't not believe that what you read about there is something that is a reflection of people having the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Which I think by implication is the kind of thing that Ephesians 5 and 6, which I've mentioned there and mentioned at the beginning of the, uh, 
course imply. Um, that is, uh, Ephesians 5 and 6 urge people to be filled with the Spirit and then to praise God in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Kind of implying that, um, the praise in the psalms and the thanksgiving in the psalms, for instance, is an expression uh, of the Holy Spirit's work. So as far as I can see, um, I, I do, it doesn't, generally speaking, when I look at my own heart and when I look at you lot, uh, and then I look at the guys in the Old Testament, I don't think, oh, how fleshly they were compared with how spiritual we are. Um, I, I'm more inclined to think, well, I, well, I, I, mean, I, I think, well, we're all a bit of a mixture, aren't we? Okay, the Holy Spirit indwells us, but we're a mess as well. At least some of you are. Um, and, and when I read those guys and look at those guys in the Old Testament, again, I see the, Holy, the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of people, in, in people like, uh, like Ruth. Um, and uh, even, even while at the same time I see people who are in a mess and so it doesn't seem realistic to assume that, that, the, uh, that there's a, a radical difference between the way in which God was involved with people in those stories in, in, the, in the writings for instance and the way that God is involved with people now and it seems to me to be more to make more sense oh, oh yeah something else about that okay next Sunday it's going to be Pentecost Aren't we excited? I'm excited. We have to wear red. The women are going to wear red in our church. We're going to have red balloons. I'm going to wear my red shirt. It's going to be an exciting day. Maybe the Holy Spirit will come down. Maybe people will speak in tongues. Maybe people will prophesy. Maybe people will get healed. But probably not. At least it didn't happen last Sunday in my church. And it probably didn't happen last Sunday in any of your church. Well, it might have happened in one or two of your churches, but mostly not. So what happened at Pentecost is not something that has carried on happening, that carries on happening in the church. Sometimes there's a great thing like the Azusa Street Revival and Pentecost happens again. And that seems to be the kind of pattern of God's, the way that God has worked through church history and the way that God worked through Israel. That is, God, in the person of his spirit, came into Israel and great things happened and then there was kind of sagging and then there was a burst and then there was sagging and then there was a burst and then there was sagging and in Joel... Joel looks forward to a day when there's going to be a huge burst. And at Pentecost there's a huge burst. And then there's sagging. And then there's another huge burst. And then there's more sagging. Um, and uh, so I don't see so much difference between the nature of God's involvement with his people now and the nature of God's involvement with his people uh, by his Holy Spirit in the way that the um, Old Testament describes it. Uh, so the Old Testament can give you a description of what it means to live in the Spirit. And it does that with regard to worship. Psalms and Lamentations and Chronicles show us how to praise and thanks and pray and intercede. Uh, Paul in Romans 8 quotes Psalm 44 um, in uh, describing his own suffering and the way in which he's suffering for God's sake. Because of, because of you we are being... Um, slaughtered all day long, says Paul in Romans 8, quoting Psalm 44. Psalms and Lamentations and Job and Ecclesiastes show us as people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells how to groan and to grieve. Um, Revelation talks about the importance of our repenting. Lamentations shows us how to repent. Ephesians urges us to be wise. Proverbs shows us how to be wise. Um, Romans 12 urges us to love and to hope. And Ruth shows us how to love and how to hope. 
Mark 10 urges people, uh, in effect, to, uh, to live the way that God intended marriage to be from the beginning, back in Genesis, and not to give in to the way in which marriages collapse, uh, for which there's a rule in Deuteronomy, for your hardness of heart, says Jesus in Mark 10. And the Song of Songs shows people how to grow together in order that their marriages may thrive rather than collapse. Mark 12, in Mark 12, Jesus tells people to uh, render to God what belongs to God and to, remember, and to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And Daniel and Esther show us how to render to God and to Caesar. Uh, 2 Peter 3 uh, talks about the way in which... Uh, uh, amuse, I always think one of the funniest chapters in, script, in Scripture is 2 Peter 3. You've never read it. Um, it's, it's about, isn't it, isn't it a long time since Jesus was, said he was going to come again? Why are things going on so long? These guys are only living in about 80 AD. What are they complaining about? <laughs> um, and, and then it goes on to say how, uh, you know, one day is a thousand years with the Lord and whatnot. So you've got to learn to live in the meantime until till, till Jesus' moment comes. When, when God decides, I'm not going to give him any more time to repent now. That's the terrible thing about when Jesus comes, is the time for repentance ends. Um, uh, so, uh, but in the meantime, until God decides the time for repentance has ended, uh, we have to live, in God's pe- live as God's people in the meantime. And books like Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel show us how to live as God's people in the meantime. Okay, so so you don't go to a place on Sundays. That's not the place God dwells. Oh, so you don't call it a sanctuary? Some don't. Some don't, but most do. (laughs) So so in theory it's different, uh, but in practice it's not so different, I don't think. Um, The New Testament doesn't seem to... The New Testament seems to... um, they, they, They carried on going to the temple... Through Acts, even though they were also the temple of the Holy Spirit, so it 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 what what's going on there? I'd say is not. It's not simply. Well, if God intended um, that the that a physical place should be replaced by that personal thing, um, God failed, but God usually fails, so that wouldn't be very surprising, um, because the. Uh, the, the inst- there is a, a, a deep human instinct um, about having places. Uh, the very fact that they had a temple wasn't God's idea, remember. See, God, David said, I want to build a temple. Um, God, God said, I don't like temples. I like being able to wander about. Uh, I don't like to be stuck in one place. But okay, if you need, to be stu- if you need, need me to be in one place so you know can, where you can find me, okay, we'll have a house. But it wasn't God's idea. Um, so the New Testament theolo- let's take, let's assume that um, as you that, that what, the way you put it is is um, is right, and that God attempted to abolish the temple again. But if God attempted to do that, God failed, because two hundred years afterwards, people invented church buildings, uh, and so ever, ever since then, we've had sanctuaries. 
uh, we've had church buildings. We have places that people go and they have a sense that God is there. And that's because there's something about humanity that kind of works that way. It's the same way as God tried to abolish priests. But God failed. I, am, I know, I am one. Uh, God tried to abolish the position of senior pastor. Um, but by about 150, senior pastors have been invented. And they've been in existence ever since. Look what trouble they are. So um, there's, there's a tension between what's God's ideal theologically, um, which, which in the Old Testament doesn't include things like temples and priests, and the way in which God makes condescensions to the way that human beings are and, and kind of works that way with us, because God has no alternative, really. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Sorry if I gave the impression that's not so. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious that yeah, sure. Um, I, I just wish that we did. Because okay. we don't. The church, I mean, the church, the church as we know it does not go about representing God. Um, so, sh yeah, sure. Um, and, and it's no good us thinking we can solve that tomorrow. It's God's problem. We need another Pentecost. Uh, but we can't generate Pentecost. It's God who has to make Pentecost happen. We could pray, but that's that's about all we can do. Um, yeah, but sure, yeah, yeah, I agree, yeah. Um, okay, let me see, let me have a look at some other of these uh, questions. I'm just going to start at the top and uh, in the way I printed out the list and uh, have a look at a few. Um, Reading the scripture in a specific perspective gives us a new kind of insight for it. For example, reading Song of Songs in feminist perspective. However, sometimes it can be biased by the reader's own desires and needs. No, that's wrong. Always uh, it's biased by the reader's own desires and needs. What are the important things and points that we need to be wary of when we read the Bible with specific perspectives? The fact that you're biased by your own desires and needs. Um, do you have any tips or wisdom for students as a professor or senior minister? Um, yes, I have to be wary of my own desires and needs. <laughs> Uh, to, to talk with one another, that, that, we, that we read scripture in community, uh, and not just with people who are like us, but with people who are not like us. Uh, we're very privileged to be able to read, to be able to do, do more by way of reading in the context of the world community um, than, uh, than many times people have been able to do. Oh, and that reminds me of, yes, yeah, somebody... When the writings are studied by people other than middle-aged white men, what have been some prominent differences, especially those that, that may, may raise tensions? I don't know of many differences in that sense of raising tensions. It's more enrichment that is what happens. So, um, obviously, not the um, middle-aged white men um, immediately points to the middle-aged white women. Uh, or those feminist readings that we've looked at, and I gave you a list of different sorts of feminist readings of the wisdom uh, writings, which I found illuminating. Um, Esther is illuminating not only because, not only when read by women, but by read by Jews who don't count as middle-aged white men. Uh, they see different things there. The Psalms of protest are illuminating when you read them on the lips of people who are not people of privilege like us, uh, but people in, say, rural Africa or people in oppressed countries, or when Kathleen and I read them on behalf of the people of Darfur. And that's an interesting example. Uh, I hadn't planned to say that again, but, I, but now I'm thinking about it. 
I can see that by an effort of the imagination, you, you, you don't need to be talking with an African person in order to seek to imagine what it would be like to pray this psalm on behalf of, say, Christians in Nigeria who are having their churches burned um, by people in northern Nigeria. Uh, it's not a very big act of the imagination to be able to get into their position and pray the psalms on their behalf. Um, and, uh, and people who are still, there are several people who are still kind of concerned, puzzled about how to, about the imprecatory psalms. If you put yourself into the position of people like that, then it's more feasible to uh, imagine why the imprecatory psalms are there, as indeed Africans reading the psalms have pointed out. Um, how do the wisdom literature, especially Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, look at, relate to other religions? Uh, well, they don't. Um, well, no, that's not true, is it? I suppose because you could say the other, uh, the Babylonian religion and whatnot, they, uh, they do by implication. It seems that a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu might not have any big issues with accepting these writings as part of their core of religious writings if these pieces are developed within their own context. That's true about the wisdom books. It's to a fair extent true about the Psalms. It obviously wouldn't be true about, say, Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and, and that fits with the fact that, uh, that the wisdom books, for instance, it's fine that they are part of Scripture. If they were the entirety of the Bible, there wouldn't be so much point having the Bible because it would be the same as other people's. The essential thing about the Bible is the story that it tells about the nature of the Gospel. Yep? Oh, thank so you. Yeah. All of the, the mm. Psalms and the different pieces which would say, you know, God, how could you do this? That's that's not allowed. Yeah. That would actually be offensive, and so mm. those would actually be discounted. Thank you. Yeah. That that also, of course, that's also true in the church, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but but it is the case that the um, yeah, that some of the writings, particularly the wisdom books, or well, proverbs, yeah, at least subject subject to that point, that the that aspect of the psalms and the proverbs might provide you with your way in, your common ground uh, with people from other religions, as you wanted to be able to talk to them about Jesus. Um, yes, I'm just looking for the one, a nice one that somebody asked about. Why, why don't we talk about the Apocrypha? And I thought I ought to say something about that. Um, I can't see the question now, but somebody definitely asked, why don't we talk about the Apocrypha? Oh yes, in my opinion, what's the value of the Apocrypha deuterocanonical writings for Old Testament study? Why are they largely ignored in Protestant scholarship and preaching? Well, I don't think that the Apocrypha deuterocanonical writings is two ways of describing... Uh, the, the books that come between the Old Testament and the New Testament um, in some Bibles. Um, I don't always, I'm not always carrying an Apocrypha, but this, this one does have um, the, the Apocrypha uh, in the middle of it. Apocrypha is the old term for these um, Jewish writings from what we might call late Old Testament times, from between Old Testament and New Testament times. It's a slightly misleading expression, but it'll do roughly. Uh, Apocrypha is the old term, 
the politically correct term is now deuterocanonical writings. The first canon um, is, the, uh, is what we call the Old Testament. The, the second canon, the deuterocanonical writings, is those extra works. Um, are there any use for understanding the Old Testament? Not really. That's not their point, as it were. Um, I've lost the question to see what the other sub-questions were now. Oh, here it is. Why are they largely ignored in Protestant scholarship? I don't think they, they aren't largely ignored in Protestant scholarship. Why are they largely ignored in Protestant preaching? Well, they are largely ignored, certainly, in Protestant preaching. Um, and the, the reason is because in Protestant tradition, uh, the, the, the thing that counts as the Old Testament, um, that is, the, the Torah, the Prophets, and the Writings, uh, are what the Jewish community saw as their Bible. The Deuterocanonical writings were never regarded as part of the Bible uh, by the Jewish community. Uh, they, uh, uh, they, they came to be taken seriously within the church, partly kind of as a, by accident, because the Old Testament in the strict sense got translated into Greek. Um, these other writings were either in Greek or were translated into Greek. Uh, and so many of the early Christians in places like um, Egypt uh, didn't realize there was a distinction between these different scrolls, didn't know where the division lay. Uh, the, but the, then um, at the time of the Reformation, the Protestant churches um, made a point of saying that it's the Torah, the prophets and the writings that count as the Old Testament. Uh, and so that's become the, tr the Protestant tradition since. Um, the Episcopal Church, of course, can't make up its mind. Um, and so we do sometimes read from the apocryphal writings, the deuterocanonical writings uh, in church, uh, but the 39 Articles, the kind of basis of faith of the um, Episcopal Church, says that you don't base doctrine on them. They can be edifying, they're okay, they're not the work of Satan, which is rather what I used to think when I was young. You know, they, the Roman Catholics believe them, we know the Roman Catholics are the work of Satan, therefore the Apocrypha is the work of Satan. I mean, some things I've changed my mind about over the years. Um, that, so, but they, they are edifying, um, but they are, uh, there's reason for viewing them as having as in a different position from the uh, works that the Jewish community took as scripture and that when 2 Timothy says referring back to scripture as inspired by God uh, as near as we can say what the New Testament would mean by the scriptures is what we would call the Old Testament not the Jewish canonical writings um, Is a general moral ethic or diverse moral ethic within, is it, uh, within the writings? I'm thinking about sexual ethics in Ruth, Esther and the Song of Solomon. Um, I'm not sure that there's a lot of difference between them. Um, Ruth and the Song of Songs probably don't... Um, Give, imply the kind of advice to uh, couples who aren't yet actually married um, that the parents of the teenagers in your church would be glad if you gave them, if you see what I mean. Um, in other words, the, uh, yeah, the, 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 what, what, what is the amount of sexual involvement that might be possible before somebody had been to a marriage service might be, might be different, um, or might not, in Ruth and the Song of Songs. Esther is in a different position, I don't know that Esther, I mean, 
not in the sexual, the, the, differ, the, only, the difference in Esther would be the acceptance of polygamy, uh, which um, which the Old Testament assumes, um, the Old Testament doesn't direct, never directly critiques polygamy, though um, the, its implication uh, is, from the, at the beginning of Genesis, I would have thought, is that one man, one woman for life is, is it. And that polygamous relationships fall short of God's ideal in the same way as divorce and remarriage fall short of God's ideal. So, um, I'm not sure that the, if there's diversity of sexual ethics, it's the same as the diversity that we live with. That is, we view uh, one man, one woman for life um, as the ideal. But our churches and our seminaries are full of people who um, have been uh, divorced and remarried. Uh, and and we, we live with that tension between God's ideal and making allowance for the um, realities of how life works out for people. And I'm not sure that um, the, uh, the writings are any different in that um, two-sidedness two, two of the way they talk about sexual ethics. Much of the writings, such as Job and Ecclesiastes, claim that God allows both good and bad things to happen. I don't see that any other kind of view is possible, is it? I mean, good and bad things happen in the world, and God allows them to happen. Really? Isn't, doesn't, isn't that? I mean, what else can you think? Is this how Israel viewed Yahweh? Well, yeah. I mean, how else can you think? And if so, what do you think we, why do you think we often attribute bad or painful things or situations to Satan uh, rather than say, should we just expect only good from God? Um, well, even if you attribute them to Satan, God is allowing them. Um, unless you think that God is so powerful um, that God can do things, that Satan can do things that God doesn't allow which means you've become some kind of a you know, sharp dualist, really, uh, with God and Satan having equal power. Are we making excuses for God in order to not to distort our own petty image, or sorry, pretty image, though both of those would do, um, of who God is? Yeah, I think so. I think we don't face the facts. Um, God's responsible for everything in the that happens in the world. Now that's, that goes with the territory. God has a note, and, uh, one of those notices on his desk that says, the buck stops here. Um, the, the bad things that happen, God allows to happen. Um, they, yeah. I was surprised to hear that the word salvation in the Old Testament carries quite a different meaning than how I understand it nowadays in the New Testament. <coughs> Has salvation in the sense of heaven and eternal life with God always been part of God's plan, even though it was not fully exposed in the Old Testament? It had to be, since Yahweh from the beginning chose the Israelites to reach out to the Gentiles. Is salvation in the Old Testament sense of being restored with the Creator God only for life on earth then? Does this definition play a role in the meaninglessness of life, where death is the final destination with no hope of eternity with God? What was their understanding of that about their eternal souls after death? Yeah. Uh, uh, salvation in the sense of heaven and eternal life 
uh, is certainly mentioned in Genesis 2. That is, there is the tree, um, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, and the tree of life. Um, and Adam and Eve were free, apparently, to take of the tree of life, but they didn't, because they thought the tree of knowledge of good and evil sounded more interesting. Uh, and they thereby lost the opportunity to take from the tree of life. And it is mysterious, you could say, that there's then no further reference to that. that that's it, it, within, within the Old Testament. It ju it's just kind of gone. Um, and, and there's a kind of contentedness subject to, uh, in a minute, coming back to Ecclesiastes, within the Old Testament as a whole, about the fact that um, you live your life uh, all being well, um, it's, uh, you have youth and you grow up and you grow older and you die and you go to be with your ancestors uh, in the family grave and that's okay. Uh, so the understanding about their eternal souls after death is you're in Sheol and it's alright, it's not a place of suffering, it's not very exciting, but it's okay. Um, Ecclesiastes is the exception, it seems, in being bothered by that. Though, um, as in the... Well, there are two issues, I think, about death, um, and this affects the Psalms too. There's the question of whether the fact that you die at all makes everything meaningless. But there's also uh, the question, the, 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 the fact that many people die before their time that raises questions about meaninglessness. Uh, that the, when the Psalms are crying out about death, it's about, the, it's about the fact that it looks as if I'm going to die and I'm only 20 or 30 or 40 or something. And of course in traditional cultures many people did die relatively young. And in Ecclesiastes the problem is, is at least as much that you never know when you're going to die. Um, and that's still true for us. That's the point about the, the Archbishop Bloom quote that I read to you earlier this evening. The fact that we are going to enjoy resurrection life does not mean that therefore um, the fact that many people enjoy only short lives now doesn't matter. Otherwise you wouldn't be all caring about peace and justice and fairness to people, would you? You want people to enjoy peace and justice in this life. Uh, because this life matters. God invented this life. God likes it. God is not just interested um, in heavenly life. Otherwise why bother with this life? This life is not just preparation for that life. This life is valuable in its own right. Um, so it looks as if salvation in the sense of heaven and eternal life with God what, yeah, was God's plan from the very beginning from Genesis 2. Um, and it was fully exposed in the Old Testament because it was there. But it then, um, it then kind of disappeared. Incidentally, I think that's an interesting example of how there used to be a thing called progressive revelation. Is there still a thing called progressive revelation? Yeah, Well, it's upside down, you see. The way the Old Testament describes things, it's progressive kind of... What's the opposite of revelation? Obscurity. Pro progressive obscuration, rather than progressive revelation. Because everything's much clearer at the beginning than it was later on. It's not that people gradually got things clearer. It's actually, things got more obscure. At least some things did. Um, and uh, the, back at the beginning of Genesis, the idea that people were to eat of the tree of life and live forever was there... But, but then it went, and as I say, people seem to be okay about that, in a way that to us seems mysterious. They cease to be okay about it, um, 
precisely in light of the fact not only that, n that many people didn't live their lives out in a full way, and to their full length, not, but, but more in light of the fact of the way in which persecution, um, martyrdom, cut short people's lives. And it was that crisis in the second century, in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, to which the visions in Daniel refers, uh, that seems to have led to the development of a... Um, hope, conviction, idea that there would be resurrection life. Daniel 12 itself refers to that for some people in connection with martyrdom. Um, and in the time after, the time between then and New Testament times, the, um, m many Jews came to believe that there was going to be resurrection. Uh, that was the characteristic, that was a key difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed there was going to be a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. Um, Jesus and Paul said the Pharisees were right, though they were right for the wrong reasons. Um, because um, the Pharisees were just, well, it was good reasons in a way. The Pharisees had got theological reasons for believing there was going to be a resurrection. God must be fair. Uh, Jesus provided a factual reason for believing in the resurrection, that is, he actually died and he rose from the dead as the first fruits uh, of the final resurrection. And therefore, on the basis of Jesus, you've got a basis for talking about, believing in resurrection that you, ha that you hadn't got before. Um, which, incident, which reminds me of a question I've been kind of puzzling over, and I'd be interested to, see, to hear what anybody's got to say about it. What is there theologically in the New Testament that's new? Now, I don't think there's anything about the character of God. There is something they didn't know. The Old Testament guys didn't know that God, is th that God has got three ways of being God. Um, but they knew that God was love, uh, but that God was also involved in judgment. Um, they knew that God was concerned about the whole world. Um, they, amusingly, they didn't know about it, resurrection life, but by Jesus' day, the Pharisees had started believing in resurrection life, so that wasn't actually a new idea. What were the new ideas in the New Testament? Mark, you're a systematic theologian, you must know. Uh, I was thinking, uh, I'm, a I'm sorry? I'm a <laughs> Who'd want to be a systematic theologian? That's really weird. It's okay. He's a very enlightened wannabe, though. Uh, sealing of the spirit. Sealing of the spirit. Yeah. How does that fit with what I was saying about the spirit? No, I don't think I believe that one. No. Partly because. Sorry. Whoa. Yeah, the incarnation. Inca yeah, well, that's more an event than an idea. That's, um, that, that's the, see, it fits with my conviction. The really important thing about the New Testament is what happened, not what it revealed. That is, the thing, the thing the New Testament tells you is that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. That's why you need the New Testament. It's not that it gives you new, new ideas. It's that it gives you some new facts. It's, it, it's the gospel story that counts rather than some... Ideas. Yeah, Go on. Yeah. 
fulfillment. There's a, there's a kind of... Sorry? Proleptic. Oh, all these fulfillment, proleptic, <laughs> I don't know, wannabe, systematic theologian <laughs> crap. Yeah. Somebody else was waiting. Somebody else was waiting. Yeah. Yeah, of course it is. That's 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 Paul's argument in Romans that that the that the relationship between God and Israel is based on grace. That's that's the thing. That's the way in which he has to show that his gospel is consistent with what the scriptures have got to say. That 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 God's reaching out to Abraham was a matter of grace. It was based on promise. It wasn't Abraham didn't do anything. Yeah. Certainly. So does that mean that it is consistent from the Old Testament? Yeah, that's exactly the same. Okay. That's, that's, so your question Well, that, I'd say that's a, that's that's the same. It's not it's not a new idea. It's not that in the Old Testament people were told uh, you 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 relate to God on a basis of works, and then Jesus came along and says no, it's a matter of grace. It's I mean yeah, it's it's that it was based on God's on God's initiative. God's grace. Well, that God God said God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you these blessings, and then gave them. And and Paul's argument in Romans is. Um, Abraham didn't do anything. It's crucial that circumcision came after God had made those promises. That's 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 Paul's way of showing that it's a matter of grace, not a matter of not works. Okay. Um, this might not entirely jive with the discussions of um, suffering. I'm trying to say, but it sounds, at least in Paul, it sounds like suffering of the community of the Christians expected as opposed to just a fact of life. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, thank you. That's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, but it's the yeah, but but it's the it's the thing that happens that is God becomes a human being. That's the new event. It doesn't it doesn't show you anything new about God. Humanity was made in God's image anyway. Yeah, but that was an event. It's not an idea. That's my, that's my point. Um, but, uh, yeah. yeah, go on. No, I'm saying that the important thing about it is, is that it happened. Um, uh... If there's a new idea, it's like the Trinity. Clearly the Trinity is a new idea. There's nothing like that in the Old Testament. The idea, that is, then, that, 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 there are, that God has three ways of being God, that's a new idea. But the reason why it's a new idea, it follows on precisely the fact that Jesus is the incarnation of God, and then that the Holy Spirit is poured out, so that the idea follows from the event. Um, it, yeah. It's 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 because the thing the thing happens that Je- uh, that is that Jesus comes uh, and that the Holy Spirit is given that there is consequently a realization about what this th- this tells us some more things about God that we didn't know before in that sense yeah that's kind of how theology works in general sorry oh and then and then you know th- and then. Mm, Mm-hmm. Yeah, but God does say first, "I'm going to do it," right. 
and then does it, and then says, see, I did it. And these are the implications. And, and maybe the same, maybe with the New Testament wanted to say something different. Yeah, because um, Jesus talks about dying and then dies. And then, as it were, says, you see, I died. I'm sorry, that's a, I, I, that's a, I'm sorry I shouldn't put it, say, say it so um, frivolously. Uh, but you see, there's, there's a kind of similar, similarity of pattern there. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Mm. Oh, so you mean? Uh, well, no. Th- yeah, that would be another aspect of an, a, a kind of nuancing of who God is, like that God has three ways of being God, that issues from the event. Yeah, there's, there's. I mean, there are, God does suffer in the Old Testament. God gets hurt, um, uh, that kind of thing. But, but the the incarnation. The coming of Jesus and the crucifying of Jesus takes uh, suffering into God in a new way and thus generates a new idea, yeah. So maybe the, the, the way in which I need to nuance my, my point or my question is something is to say, note how in the New Testament, when there are new, when there are new ideas, it's because God has done something new that there are new ideas. We, because we because of a kind of academic environment or something, we tend to think ideas are what matters. The New Testament and the Old Testament thinks it's things that happened that mattered. It's the fact that Jesus came and died for you that mattered, that matters. Um, it's the happening. That, that The reason why the Bible is important is because it tells you things that God did, not because it's got some clever ideas. Uh, or it's only, its ideas are only clever because they are related to things that God did. Yeah? For God? Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, quite a lot in the prophets and whatnot. You get God's grief at, yeah, at being, at, at rejection and so on. Sure, yeah. But it's, but it's, it's not, um, it's not as kind of dramatic or something as God being crucified. Sure, yeah. Oh yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I mean certainly the, the basic, the basic idea that the exodus happened, uh, and and the basic historicity of the story is important. Sure, yeah, it, it would it would be no good, with Old Testament or New Testament, it would no, be no good if the thing as a whole were fiction. Yeah, sure. We need to uh, pull things together. It's because uh, we need to finish in a couple of minutes. Um, what is anybody thinking about coming and eating scones on June the fourth? Does anybody like think that they might be in a condition to do that? No? Okay. Yes? One or two? Okay. Uh, okay, let's say we'll do it. Uh, if you could email me um, the previous day uh, to say you're coming, that'll help us to know how many people are coming. Um, I'll tell you what. No, what I'll do is I'll, I'll send you a message about it a couple of days before, um, and then if people are free to come, then that would be great. Uh, and apart from that, you're supposed to turn in your paper um, by a week Friday. And do I need to say anything else? Who, for whom is this the very last course they will ever do in Fuller Theological Seminary? Wow! Uh, tell us in a sentence what you're going to do if you know. When you're finished, yeah. Uh, I'm actually going to go work on a PhD in the UK. Oh! Well, that's... Um, 
I've done that. <laughs> 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 I'm not doing it because I think find, I'll find meaning in it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going? Uh, I'm still deciding between St. Andrews and uh, King's College. Oh, fantastic. Right, yeah. Uh, plans to go to Israel. My wife and, and my baby and I are going to move to Israel in like December. To do what? Wow. Wow. Okay, let's pray for those two and then for all of us. Gracious God, we thank you for the futures that you open up to people as they leave. We pray for people who don't know what they're going to do, but we pray for these two who do, uh, at least in outline, know what they're going to do. And we pray that you will prosper uh, what they seek to, get to do and grant them a, a measure of meaning and significance and achievement in what they do in your name. We pray for the rest of us and ask that you'll continue to write the scriptures unto our hearts and give us grace to live in light of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't that right? I think so, isn't I thought, it? I thought it's due to Nate. Sorry? Isn't it due the last day of finals week? Isn't that the last day of finals week? Oh, oh no, it's two, yeah. a bigger one. It's two and a half weeks. It's two, yes, two and a half weeks. Yeah.
yes. And then um, I didn't get to the test tonight, so I don't know if I just need to just take a zero on that. If I need to, I will. But if I'm able to get, then I'll definitely keep it. Whatever you want. Whatever you decide. Uh, I didn't really want to send it again. I really want to okay. write that That's last fine. one. No problem. Right. Okay. okay, thank you. I was discovering what you did. Sorry. All right, no problem. Thank you. 